For the week of Wednesday, October 24th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, tracing the historical impact of women's rage with writer Rebecca Traster. Her latest book, Good and Mad, details the transformative power of female anger, from Seneca Falls to the Me Too movement. Women's rage is often the propellant force behind what will become waves of change that reach deep into the future. Then, with just two weeks to go until the midterm election, 3rd District Congressional Candidate Carolyn Long has pulled even with Republican incumbent Jamie Herrera Butler in recent polls. And we replay our interview with Long from April of this year. That's all coming up, so stay with us. In the last two years since the election of Donald Trump, women's anger has grown into a political force. But nobody had ever tracked the role female anger has played in shaping our nation's cultural and political evolution until Rebecca Traster decided to take it up in her latest book. She is writer-at-large for New York Magazine and a contributor to Elle. She's also the author of the New York Times bestseller All the Single Ladies. Her current book is Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Rebecca Traster, it is so good to talk to you. Welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So, you know, your book talks about what you call the, quote, nexus of women's anger in American politics. And it is is so timely. It's kind of hard to know where to jump in. Uh, But I'd I'd like to start by talking about the Senate hearings with Dr. Christine Mm -hmm. Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. And, you know, particularly the contrast between the anger that Kavanaugh was permitted to show and ultimately was rewarded for showing. And then the way that Dr. Ford comported herself with such constraint and dignity. Because that dynamic almost perfectly encapsulates many of the points that you make about female anger in your book and elsewhere. What were your thoughts as you watched those hearings play out? Well, I think in particular, you use the word, um, you know, what was permissible, the kind of the expressions of anger that were permissible for one of them and and not for the other. Mm. Um, And so it's that certainly struck me as soon as I heard Dr. Blasey Ford start to testify. And I knew, I understood that especially when trying to um, make her story heard and, and be believed um, to a very powerful group of people, the Senate Judiciary Committee, she had to stay within a very narrow range of, of expression. And we all know sort of instinctively that had she raised her voice in anger, had she um, talked back to any members of the judiciary in the way that Kavanaugh would later in the day, um, she would have done herself harm, right? It's not just she would have undermined her own cause because when women raise their voice in anger, they're understood to be over-emotional, theatrical, hysterical, infantile. Um, and so we knew she had to stay within that narrow range in order to impress upon the powerful people she was addressing that her story was valid. By contrast, it wasn't simply that um, Kavanaugh was permitted to be angry on his own behalf, it's that he could wield anger as a rhetorical weapon because men, and in particular white men, and even more specifically powerful white men, and that's Brett Kavanaugh, um, who comes from an elite background, wielded an enormous amount of judiciary power already. um, Because those kinds of men are presumed to be our rational norm and inherently sort of rational, believable, anger them can amplify their point. It can make them stronger. So whereas for Dr. Blasey Ford, it would have taken away from her 
goal. For Kavanaugh, it, that anger could serve as a weapon in trying to make his case to those powerful people. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. But I would argue that there's another form of anger that was really crucial in the context of those hearings. And that's the anger that um, was happening in the protests um, and that found its most, I think, meaningful and powerful voice um, in the expression of Ana Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher, the two women who confronted Jeff Flake in the elevator the next day. Um, and I think we don't want to forget that that form of anger was also on display because for all the ways in which Christine Ford could not have, Blasey Ford could not have used anger as a part of her arsenal because in fact, she was appealing to a group of powerful people and it would have discounted her in some way. The anger that was expressed by those two women in the elevator wound up being powerful as anger because it gave voice and release and expressed the fury of so many millions of women who didn't get to be in that elevator and were feeling furious all over the country and perhaps all over the world and whose fury was communicated by those two women pointing their fingers powerful man looked them in the eye. Yeah, it really did articulate, I think, the rage that, and actually I will just sort of speak for myself, uh, that a lot of people who watched the judiciary hearings were feeling, but I, I'm sure for women in particular. And, you know, it really does kind of circle back to the, there are a couple dynamics that emerge in your book around women's rage. And, and one is that historically, as we've, you know, just articulated, women's anger has just not been acceptable in our society. And the other is that it's threatening to power. And I think both of those two things really sort of played out very neatly, both in Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony and then also with the confrontation in the elevator. But first, if you would talk about why female rage feels unacceptable in our society, even sometimes amongst other women. Well, I think it's been make coded as unacceptable in part because it's a threat to power. So, and that's really important that we not lose that distinction. There's a reason why it is discouraged and marginalized. Um, and I think it's, I mean, my guess, as I make in the book, is that in part it's because we recognize the disruptive power of of loudly voiced female dissent. If you, if you look, we understand the power of political rage at under or a lack of representation or equality. That is the rage um, that gave birth to the country. And it's a rage that we've always been able to admire and in fact fetishize um, in a, in a positive way um, when we talk about our founding narrative. And that's, and in that case, the rage of the un, unrepresented um, demanding liberty and equality and, and representation from a government that was taxing and policing them. That is the rage that, you know, we sort of carve onto our buildings and, you know, that we look to as our national patriotic touchstone. Yeah, And of course, that was rage expressed by white men. It was rage expressed by white men. Um, but because that is our founding narrative, we understand the eruptive and disruptive power of that kind of anger at, at perceived inequity and injustice. But when it's been deployed against the power structure that was built by those men as they codified in their new country, exactly some of the same kinds of lack of representation, lack of equality or access to participation, to enfranchisement, to representation that they were so mad about on their own behalf, then we can understand better why rage against them is quickly understood to be potentially dangerous because their rage had dangerous impact on the British government. And so the rage against them and their new government and and the kind of power structures they were building here in their new nation, um, rage against those power structures 
of course, might be disruptive to them. Sure. So there's a vested interest in dismantling that and in, in undermining that. In suppressing and discouraging that yeah. rage. Yes. And so and those so it's the powerful in this country who get to tell the stories, who get to teach the history and do the political reporting and be the politicians themselves and lead the parties. And they sort of form many of our cultural messages and we absorb them and then repeat them you know, to ourselves. And so among the, the powerful messages we've received is that the anger of the underrepresented, the oppressed or the subjugated is inherently irrational, marginalizing, um, dangerous, destructive, bad for you, um, infantilizing. And But that's for a reason. We discourage it because we know that it has the power to upend institutions. Right. And that sort of gets to points that you make about how race and class have also been very effectively used to uh, keep women, uh, for want of a better word, uh, divided in that regard. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, this country is built on minority rule. You look can look at it in terms of, uh, you know, having been built by white patriarchs as a white capitalist patriarchy. Um, you know, white men were certainly had the franchise. They had the ability to build the courts, the government, the the financial institutions, the economy, the culture, um, with them at the center for a long time, wielding exclusive power. Um, and even then, after, you know, generations of protest against against that, those those um, inequities made them give up a small share of it. It was still only a small share. So how does a minority power maintain power over uh, an underrepresented majority? Um, in a democracy where theoretically that majority could rise up and and overtake the minority power. They keep them divided, right? You yeah. divide it against it, divide yeah. the majority against itself. And how do you do that? You offer portions of it incentives um, and access to some of that power that is going to make them more inclined to support that continued power's dominance. And so you offer patriarchy to men across races and you offer white supremacy to white women. Um, and, and those Internal inequities have been powerful enough in some cases to break a fracture or of progressive protesters. Yeah. I mean, it's really hard to not see that uh, playing out so clearly, you know, what the, the GOP has done, what Trump has done so incredibly effectively. Um, you know, th- this book is expressly not about you, but you do talk a little bit about your own journey with anger. And you see that you learned early on in your writing career to to find ways to sort of subvert it or suppress it. Do, do you remember that being a conscious choice for you? Um, I remember thinking about it. I, I certainly don't remember conceiving of it as suppression. I do probably because I was trained on some level to not even really think of myself as inherently angry because that would have been a sort of self-contained negative. So of course, anger was undergirding my work. I was a feminist journalist. I was writing about inequality. Of course I was angry, but it is true that the messages about anger being invalidating and not tactically sound, if you want to make your point persuasively, were so powerful that, um, that, yes, I do remember, I think I probably wrote about it as a young person. I, I can't remember the exact instances, but I know that I thought about it as I was part of a generation of journalists and and from another angle activists who were taking part in um a rebirth of a mainstream feminist journalism um i certainly remember thinking about how many of us were taking pains to ensure that the tone of this new of a contemporary feminist conversation was lighthearted was funny um ironic you know sex positive all these things that would in some way distance us um from the 
you know, in many cases, deeply false stories we've been told about how the anger of our foremothers in the second wave feminist movement um, had made them unattractive and their arguments unappealing. And, um, you know, there was a sense that we weren't going to repeat um, the history of of the previous generation of feminists who had been cast negatively as angry, old, you know, humorless, sexless harpies. Now, of course, that whole packaging of them that way was fundamentally dishonest. Um, but And I may have even known that, but I still understood the power of a negative caricature of female anger. And and I think did work on some level to obscure whatever fury was driving my writing. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of the previous generation of feminists there, um, there's a passage in your book where you are thinking back to 2016. And this is after we had had a black president for eight years. Uh, We had our first female candidate for president in a major party uh, who at the time everybody trusted was going to win the election. And people had been using terms like post-feminist. And the assumption or maybe the the hope really was that women didn't need to be angry anymore. Um, You, for your part, don't really seem to buy into that in the book, but you start the book by talking about a documentary from 1973 called The Year of the Woman by Sandra Hochman, mm-hmm. uh, which showed women's rage on full display. Uh, what in your mind happened in those ensuing years that took women from a place where they felt that they could openly express anger to 2016, where maybe there was an assumption that women didn't need to feel angry anymore? Well, in part, what happened is that that generation of feminists of the 1970s, 1960s and 1970s, along with the civil rights activists of the 1950s and 60s, the gay rights activists of the 60s and 70s, won a whole bunch of really disruptive and profound victories in terms of battling discrimination, winning new rights, new legal protections. Um, Those transformative social movements of the late 20th century um, had created change that obviously made people who had historically had a grip on power very uncomfortable because they they lost some of that exclusive grip. Um, and one of the things that happens in reaction to that kind of change is that there's a backlash to it. And part of the backlash is telling a pernicious but very seductive lie. And this is something we do in the United States all the time. We pat ourselves. We don't like to address the inequity that the nation was built on and that has um, shaped its lived reality throughout its entire history. We don't like to look at that um, head on. And so whenever we do talk about inequality, it's, we often frame it comfortably as a thing of the past, right. as a stage through which we have successfully passed. And that's a very comfortable posture for Americans. It enables us to sort of pat ourselves on the back for having done all this great work of making ourselves better and keeps us from having to look at the contemporary inequalities and and battles that remain to be fought. And that was the great backlash lie of the 1980s and the 1990s, that the very real progress that was made, um, legal, social, uh, you know, cultural um, policy victories, um, that were made by those social movements um, had fixed all the problems. Right. And therefore, there was nothing left to be mad about. There was nothing left to fight about. And of course, some of the gains made by some of those people whose fortunes had been boosted by those by those legal, social, and cultural victories um, included figures like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, who whose sort of individual and very unusual rises to power within a fundamentally unequal system came to represent so much more than was 
quite true, right? Yeah. And so the the myth that you know, in electing Barack Obama president, we had solved America's racism problem, or that the inevitability of Hillary Clinton, inevitable two presidencies in a row, by the way, I hope you noticed that, <laughs> totally inevitable, um, <laughs> uh, that these were the new power. And it, on the one hand, that also fueled the discomfited fury of those on the right who were uneasy about having to share power. Um, and it fueled the kind of energies that could be appealed to by a campaign like Donald Trump that made openly racist, xenophobic, misogynistic um, calls for support. Yeah, it all makes sense perfectly in, in retrospect, uh, the, the way that all the kind of pieces fit together. But, of course, that's history for you. Um, so, you know, in the book, you have a, a chapter on a number of ways that women over uh, the centuries have kind of learned to express anger in ways that are, quote unquote, acceptable. And I, I just want to talk about a couple of those. Um, you uh, mentioned how some suffragists expressed it through religion, uh, Carrie Nation, for example, on behalf of God. Um, uh, you talk about the case of Washington Senator Patty Murray. Uh, who, when she first became politically active in 1980, she's protesting cuts to preschool programs at the state capitol. Uh, she was uh, denigrated as being just a mom in tennis shoes, and she eventually took that as a campaign slogan. And you said that minimizing mm-hmm. is a classic way of subverting uh, female anger. Talk about a few of the other ways that, that women have learned to express rage in America. Well, one of the most... Um I think one of the most under-recognized but common forms of the expression of anger that we feel we can't express through yelling or open confrontation um, is crying. Um, I think that women often cry when they're furious and they understand that their fury won't be heard or will be held against them. If it's unleashed as fury, it gets converted into tears. And in some cases, those tears can have their own persuasive Impact. I mean, one of the studies that I found when I was writing this book found that women accusing their partners of domestic violence, if they cried on the witness stand, the accused men were more likely to get a longer sentence than if they yelled. Um, that is particularly the case, and you can never talk about any of these issues without acknowledging the racial and class dynamic. Um, for white women who cry and white women who within a white patriarchy are more easily discernible as traditionally feminine and, um, you know, easy within this white patriarchy to sympathize or empathize with white women's tears can often, um, be made to, uh, draw or underline a sense of vulnerability, um, rather than aggression. Um, and the aggression is off putting, but the vulnerability, um, can make them more appealing to people in power, um, including white men. So, but I think that tears as a as an expression of rage are so vastly misunderstood because they're read as a sign of vulnerability or weakness in many women when in fact they're they're a signal that those women are feeling a totally blinding rage. Yeah. In fact, I believe it was Ana Maria Archila who talked about that very thing about how uh, her tears when confronting Jeff Flake uh, were coming from a place of fury, not sadness or, say, vulnerability. Uh, there are a few other things that you talk about, in particular, uh, the way that a mother might express rage uh, with a very moving example of Mamie Till uh, insisting that the casket of her son Emmett Till be open for the world to see at his funeral. Uh, you talk about the power of humor and uh, profanity. Um, I would also point out that it seems like a lot of women are channeling rage into activism and especially running for office. Uh, more women are seeking mm-hmm. office in 2018 uh, than in any time in history, which is just phenomenal. Yes, and you have women working on their behalf, knocking doors, um, 
you know, finding each other in many cases via Indivisible and all kinds of other organizations and networks that have sprung up um, and have been built in many cases um, by women who are angry um, at the inequity that they've just, that has just been made so completely visible um, and inarguably visible to them. Um, So yes, that's, and that's something that we saw in the wake of Anita Hill testimony against Clarence Thomas, um, her claims that she had been sexually harassed by him and the, um, the derisive, um, disrespectful treatment that she received from an all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee in 1991, um, that view of that inequality and the way that um, Anita Hill was treated by that Senate Judiciary Committee was so stark and so many women were angry about it that it propelled many of them back in 1991 to run for office. One of them was Patty Murray. One of them was, was Patty Murray, them. exactly. One of them yeah. was Patty Murray. One of them was Carol Mosley Bond, who was the first African-American woman ever elected to the United States Senate in 1991. One of them was Diane Feinstein, who is now the ranking Democrat on this very Judiciary Committee um, that that heard Christine Blasey Ford's testimony against Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, the other one was Barbara Boxer, who's recently retired, and her seat went to Kamala Harris, who coincidentally is the second black woman ever elected to the United States Senate, and who also sat on that Judiciary Committee. So you can sort of see how, again, women's rage is often often the propellant force behind what will become waves of change that reach deep into the future. That's something that I think is a big part of what we're talking about. Women's rage, Mamie Till's anger, which is often obscured, and and we're taught that Mamie Till is a catalytic figure um, because she insisted that her son have an open casket funeral and that photographs of his brutally beaten body be published in Jet Magazine, making that racist violent brutality visible to millions of Americans. We understand that that is a a move that is catalytic and absolutely instrumental to the burgeoning civil rights movement in 1955. But we're often presented as, you know, Mamie Till is a woman whose actions were born entirely out of grief, and there was no doubt that she was a woman who was feeling and experiencing grief. But I don't think that grief alone um, propels you to make those kinds of choices about making the violent brutality that's been visited on the body of your young son so visible to the world. I think that anger does that. And but we're not taught to see that anger and recognize it as the fuel um, that wound up sort of exploding into a public consciousness in a way that that helped energize a movement that would go on. It would be a decade yeah. before the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. Um, and I think that one of the one of the key things we have to understand is that the rage that women are feeling now, the rage that undergirded Anna Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher's um, yelling at Jeff Flake in that elevator, that is a force that may be shaping our future decades from now. In the same way that the rage in response to Anita Hill's testimony, you know, you can look at the Senate Judiciary Committee that that listened to the Blasey Ford testimony and you can see the roots truly, directly, direct lines between the women who ran for office in in 1992 and won office at a historic rate and the women who were sitting on that Judiciary Committee 27 years later. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'd like to close on this idea because I think it ties it all together. So historically in the book, you track all the way back to the Seneca Falls Convention, which is basically the birthplace of the women's suffrage movement. Uh, You touch on the 60s and 70s, the early 90s, um, all of what people may think of as waves of female anger. And 
of course, this is very much a matter of speculation, but I think a lot of people are wondering if this current expression of female anger with the Me Too movement, the anger at so much of what Trump and the GOP are doing, if this anger right now will result in lasting change and what that change might look like. Uh, I'd love your thoughts on that. Well, I, you know, it's that question which I'm asked very often, and I think I'm asked, and often it's phrased, is this a moment or is this a movement? You know, and I think that the impulse behind that question is so comprehensible to me because we want to know that our efforts and the kind of fear and work that we're putting in, and of course for many women, this is a new engagement with civic activism and responsibility, and it's hard work, and it's changing their lives, and it's changing their schedules, and it's changing their family dynamics, and they're pinning their hopes to battles where they have less power, where the, the truth is they have less power. That's why they're mad. But that also means that there are going to be defeats, like the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh, that are absolute sort of kicks in the teeth. Um, and so I think there's a yearning to know that this was all worth it, that this is going to lead to something where there's going to be change in our future. Um, and the, the, the hard part of this is that we can't, that's up to us. That's up to the very women and men who are engaging in the struggle, who are doing the work, who are disrupting their lives, who are who are taking the defeats and trying to convert them into another wave of energy to keep fighting. Um, because we're the ones who determine whether this fight goes on. Um, because the fact is, it's a fight against, you know, a, a a power structure that has tremendous structural advantages over the masses. Right. And um, they're trying to get those masses to stop fighting back and to close the mechanisms and to limit the power of the masses to resist and dissent. Um, and a lot of the stuff that is now discernible to us, the, the path of, you know, Mamie Till and Rosa Parks in 1955 to the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in the mid-60s, those are discernible to us now as a, as a fluid and contiguous movement. But imagine for the people who were living in those moments where the results were certainly not immediate, um, where where you're talking about decades of work and defeat and being beaten and sent to prison and being killed and having dogs and hoses turned on you. It, in, the, in the during part and public opinion not on your side, in, in those years, it would not have been necessarily discernible to any of the people engaged in that struggle that those, those wins were in their future. It was, you know, suffragists in the, begin to come together around the abolition movement in the 1830s. And of course, you're not looking at abolition until the 1860s, and you're not looking at the passage of the 19th Amendment until 1919, ratification in 1920, and then you're not looking at the Voting Rights Act for another 45 years after that. The, the process of fighting for full enfranchisement for women and African Americans stretched over more a century and a half. And there were many people who gave their entire lives to that fight and died before they saw any sign that that fight was going to be won. And that is a really hard thing for us to absorb. And that's why we keep asking ourselves, is this going to, are we going to win? Is it going to work out? And the fact is we may live and die not knowing, you know, whether this is going to be a movement that, that alters the world and makes it better and alters this nation and corrects its inequalities. But it's up to us to keep fighting to make sure that someday that does happen. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard because there's not an easy, quick answer. 
it's we are the answer. Yeah, I, ambiguity is it's it can be very painful. It can also be very motivating, and I think that's a great message for us to to leave this on because it ultimately is up to us. Change is not guaranteed, and the people listening right now are. I mean, as you and I speak, there are exactly two weeks to probably the most important uh, midterm election of our lifetimes, and so uh, we have to get out and uh, be the change that we want to see. So, and there's something to be. I want to add something just very quickly to that of course. because I think we. Need need to think about those midterms in two ways, and they both take us to the same place. Because the fact is Democrats might lose the midterms, right? Or they might lose some of the key races that we care the most about and that we fought. That is entirely possible. And there are a million factors, from voter suppression to Koch brothers' money to the stirring up of the kind of um, racist, misogynistic, xenophobic resentments that helped to power support for a Donald Trump campaign in 2016, right? All kinds of reasons why Democrats might lose. If they do, the only thing that's guaranteed is that if those who've been fighting so hard stop fighting, that they will certainly lose deep into the future, right? right? By the same token, if Democrats win big in the midterms, and we understand that to be the victory and the end of, you know, yay, we won, we fixed it, that will also be a death sentence for this fight. <laughs> yeah. And so the, the most important thing for the next two weeks is to, to work with every molecule in our being to try to win. But then win or lose, you know, to take a very quick breather and then go straight back to fighting with every molecule. I think that's also a really important message. And this is something that many of us in the Indivisible Movement have uh, considered. Uh, I and a number of leaders that I know have talked about this very thing. And I think it's very important to see this as a continuum, to see this as as a long fight, because uh, there's a lot at stake. And as as we say, you know, change is certainly not guaranteed. Um, the book is Good and Mad from Simon & Schuster. Rebecca Traster, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your writing and for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. So before we get to a replay of our interview with third district candidate Carolyn Long, I just want to say a quick thank you to everybody who came out to the My Vote, My Voice launch event at Optimism Brewery on Monday night. It was so great to see so many wonderful faces from our community to help kick off our video voter campaign in a very big way. And I, along with the other event organizers, Maggie Cuevas, Kat Martin, and Alex Johnson, are just so grateful to all of you. Thank you again to all of our incredible speakers, Washington's rock stars. Our Attorney General Bob Ferguson, our Poet Laureate Claudia Castro Luna, MAPS Amon Executive Director Anila F. Sally, who really rubbed the crowd up. Thanks also to Tamina Watson and Aaron Albanese of Wyden and Lawyer Moms of America, who talked about the vital work that they're both doing on behalf of immigrant families and especially children. Thank you, too, to our sponsors, the ACLU of Washington, Planned Parenthood, Lawyer Moms of America, Washington Immigration Solidarity Network, Wyden, Civic Link, Vote With Me, Amplifier Art Lab, Indivisible Washington's 8th, Seattle Indivisible, Cupcake Royale, and Optimism Brewery. Thanks also to the awesome DJ Mega Booty for the Vintage Soul and R&B mix. And then just a few special thank yous to Chris Petzold, Justin Goff, and Catherine Cleland. So in case you missed last week's show, the My Vote, My Voice campaign is the ice bucket challenge for voting. And the idea is simple. Getting people to publicly declare why they are voting on social media is a great way to ensure that they will actually 
actually do it. So if you want to take the challenge, and we very much hope you will, just record a short selfie video, about 60 seconds or so, talking about what your vote will say on November 6th, and end it by challenging three to five other people to make their own videos, and then post it to social media with the hashtag MyVoteMyVoice. Boom. Just like that. And now, the replay of our interview with Democratic congressional candidate Carolyn Long. Carolyn Long is a Democratic candidate running for Congress in Washington's 3rd Congressional District, and she joins us now to discuss her campaign. Hello, Carolyn Long. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I will just start by asking, how is the campaign going so far? It's going great. I'm really excited. Um, On Friday, we had a formal kickoff to our uh, field game in Vancouver. We had between 350 and 400 people show up for that event. And that was really nice just to see the energy um, behind this campaign and the energy that's in the third congressional district for a a candidate who can win this race. So you are an uh, associate professor in the School of Politics, Philosophy and Public Affairs at Washington State University, Vancouver. Uh, You are in the process of taking a bit of a leave while you campaign. Uh, but, you know, politics is your wheelhouse. You've taught it for many, many years. So I'm, I'm moved to ask, was running for office something that you had always planned to do? Did this catch you by surprise? It caught me completely by surprise. I, I think uh, it's always in the back of everybody's mind when they, they see representation that, uh, that they think they can do better. But for me, I've really lived a nonpartisan life. The last election I ran for was student body president in high school. Oh, really? Um, yes. Uh, but what what led me to it was that a lot of my recent research has been on political polarization and the growing incivility in our public discourse. And so I've been doing a lot at the local level to address that. And um, when I started seeing what was happening at the national stage up until and including the election of this president, I started to think that there was something that I had to do about it. Um, and I really believe that I could bring a message of um, uh civility and practical problem solving to Congress, um, which is why I decided to run. Uh, Well, civility and practical problem solving are actually a couple of things that we got some listener questions about. I should mention we got a ton of listener questions when I let people know that you were going to be on this show. And so I want to get to that. But first, um, I, I think one of the things that I moved to ask, because you have been in the race the shortest amount of time among your two remaining primary opponents, uh, David McDevitt and Dorothy Gask, uh, they have a head start on you in terms of fundraising. I'm wondering uh, how you plan on making up that gap. Sure. Uh, well, working hard. Uh, uh, that's the one thing is we've started uh, raising money from individual donors. The minute we got into this race, I'm happy to say that our we reached our, our Q1 goal of a quarter of a million dollars. So I have actually raised more money um, than any other Democratic candidate at this short, for in this small amount of time. Um, uh, and so I think that I was able to close that gap very quickly, which means that I can um, uh, run this way, race competitively. Now, are those strictly uh, individual uh, donations? Are there any corporate donations that you're accepting at this point? No, I will not take corporate donations. Um, I made that clear from the beginning. I do have one. um, I've I've had several union endorsements and one union uh, pack check, um, and that's it at this point. You know, we did have a listener question about whether you would accept PAC money, uh, and it sounds like you will. And so uh, is that on a case-by-case basis? Absolutely. I would only accept PAC money from organizations um, that align with my values and beliefs. I'm a former union journeyman. Um, I 
paid my way through college as a journeyman at Safeway. And so labor has always been very important to me. And so I will definitely take their support. And I would take support from organizations like Planned Parenthood, which also aligns with my values and beliefs. So I, I wouldn't. So I'm very discriminatory in terms of where I would take that money. You know, from whom I would take that money. Sure. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned something that I was planning on getting to later, but I, I moved to ask it now because I think it's very fundamental about what's happening in the Democratic Party. And you're uh, a professor uh, of politics. And, you know, you mentioned that you've received uh, labor endorsements, specifically uh, most recently, Labor's International Union of North America. You mentioned the fact that you were in a union when you were paying your way through through college at Safeway. And I'll ask you, why do you suppose Democrats have lost labor support over the last few decades? And and what do you think it'll take to get that back? Sure. Well, I think labor has been undermined historically because the Republicans have been so effective at rebranding a lot of these issues, like the right to work. Um, And so I think that we've lost the messaging game. So you've seen, I think, the support erode because we've lost control of the conversation. I also think that we've been playing defense rather than offense on issues of labor. So I think there's that larger question that the Democrats have not been effective at messaging um, a pro-labor Uh, pro-union to just America. In terms of rank-and-file support, why Democrats are losing rank-and-file members, I think there's sort of a perspective of many people that the Democratic Party is prioritizing things other than labor um, in terms of social issues. Um, And that has been, I think, disconcerting for some uh, members, some rank-and-file members. So there's, there's a larger messaging issue, but then there's the fact that there are a lot of people who believe that they've, their needs are not being taken care of. And I think that's where you lose um, just some regular members. Well, do you think that the Democrats can become what they used to be, uh, say, back in like the 1970s or even 1980s, the big tent party where all of these different factions can kind of coexist peacefully in order to, to win elections? Well, I, th- I think we definitely can. I think we are still the big tent. I think we're just we're dealing with a little bit of fracturing in the party in terms of the direction we'd like the Democratic Party to go. So I think that we will always be inclusive of as many people as possible. That's what Democrats are like, but it's how we prioritize certain issues. And I think that we've lost sight of the fact that there are a lot of people in this country that are struggling economically. And there are a lot of people in the third congressional district, as well as nationally, who want us to lead with that conversation rather than other issues. It doesn't mean those other issues aren't important. They are, but it's how we are going to prioritize, you know, increasing salaries, um, making sure that people are secure in their homes in terms of having access to affordable housing. Those are the things that I think we need to refocus on um, with greater urgency. And since you bring that up, uh, Sue Vorenberg asks uh, specifically that question. She said, I would like to know what your thoughts are on addressing income inequality in this country. And to that, I would narrow it down and say, how will you address income inequality in Washington's third district? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the first thing that we have to do is not pass um, bills like the Republican tax giveaway, because that actually fosters greater income inequality. So through our um, tax uh, bill, through our tax uh, system, we have to make sure that we don't pass legislation that further erodes 
um, our opportunity to get ahead. When you look at the tax reform bill that the Republicans passed, and it was a Republican bill because Democrats weren't involved in that, it really benefits those who are in the upper echelons in terms of wealth and corporate donors. Um, and that is in incredibly problematic. And oftentimes uh, we will hear Republicans speaking about the few bits of uh, uh, breaks that some people get at the bottom, but it's peanuts compared to where most of that money is going, which is to um, those high income earners who aren't, by the way, reinvesting in the economy as we are told that they were going to right. do. So that's the first thing, which is to have tax policies that don't further the gap. The second thing that I think we need to do is really focus on family wage jobs. And that's where my support for union comes through loud and clear. Because if you look at wage stagnation, um, it's very problematic unless you have some added protection for workers. And so if we're able to do that, I think that that's going to provide some level of security. Um, the other thing that I would mention is uh, one of the reasons why I decided to run is because um, the incivility we're seeing in our politics mirrors income inequality. So if you were to chart income inequality and incivility uh, in our discourse and political polarization, you would see that they're absolutely aligned. So you have to make sure. And why is that in your mind? I think part of it is the outsized role that corporations have in our political discourse. Um, uh, I think part of it is also the fact that if you're if you're lower, if you know, if you're not able to get ahead in America um, and you don't see any hope um, that makes you much more, um, I think, uh, entrenched in how you feel about things and much angrier. Mm. So I think that that's part of it. Um, and you also have polarization when people start to leave the electorate. So part of the problem is that there are so many people who've decided not to participate, which then again gives more um, purchase for those who have an outsized level of influence, like like people who are in corporations and people who take that corporate money to relay their message. Well, it does seem that people are coming back to political engagement uh, if groups like Indivisible are any indication. So let's shift over and talk some specific policy issues. And I'd like to start with guns safety. We just had the March for Our Lives with tens of thousands of people marching here in Washington uh, in solidarity with the march in D.C. First, I'd like to get your take on the students in Parkland, Florida, and their ability to move what has been such an intractable discussion on, on gun safety in this country. Yeah, I think what they what they're doing is remarkable. I think these young students are really galvanized around a policy rather than a person, which is why I think they've been so effective. Oftentimes, people newly entering the electorate are attracted to a particular candidate. We've seen that usually at the presidential level, but here they've attacked. Uh, they're attracted to a policy issue that. Um, they've lived with all of their lives. You know, uh, when I grew up, we had earthquake drills. They have drills where um, uh, there's maybe an active shooter in their school. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to speak to this from experience. They're able to lead the conversation. And they're actually able to, you know, talk truth to power and really get politicians to um, think more thoughtfully than bullet points on this issue. So I think it's fantastic. And I think it's going to last. I think it's going to stay on this issue for some time. And I think they're going to move the debate forward. There have been a number of questions that have come in uh, about what sort of gun safety legislation you would support. I know that you have heard these questions from uh, people that you've spoken to um, as you are out campaigning. Uh, so what sorts of gun safety legislation do you support? 
Sure. So I think that Washington state is real, uh, can be used as a model for ways that we can approach gun safety measures. So what Washington has done in terms of um, when somebody being able to get somebody adjudicated mentally ill in front of a, a judge, I think that's fantastic legislation. Also being able to keep firearms out of the hands of domestic violence um, uh, abusers. But there's also wide bipartisan support for a number of measures, including comprehensive background checks, um, including uh, waiting day periods, including um, uh, closing the loophole uh, for gun shows. So there's a, a lot of minor uh, measures that can have a dramatic uh, um, uh, influence on gun violence overall, where we have that type of support. And I really like the extreme risk protection order uh, measure that was passed by Washingtonians because that gets to a lot of aspects of gun violence that we haven't really been talking about in light of parkland. Yeah, and I will that. just jump in very quickly to say that an ERPO is a measure that temporarily removes someone's ability to possess a firearm if he or she is deemed a danger to themselves or others. And this is an order uh, by a judge. Correct. Um, and the reason why I like that piece of legislation is it gets to other aspects of gun violence that we have to uh, continually think about, which is the fact that 50 women um, are killed per month by their domestic partners in America. And usually that is with handguns. So I think that we have to look at the number of measures that can bring gun violence down for everyone, not just a particular uh, measure aimed at um, certain types of weapons. I think for certain type of military grade weapons, we have to look at reclassifying those under the National Firearms Act, because that way we could require additional uh, training, additional education, and just make it exceedingly difficult for people to have those firearms. Um, this has been done successfully for other types of military-grade weapons, and I think it's an avenue that we can use in order to, to look at other types of weapons as well. Yeah, and, and you're talking about reclassification, and specifically the class of weapons that fall under the assault rifle category, AR-15s and the like. I, you know, I moved to ask you about something that you said about the weapons, those types of weapons that are already in circulation, you said, quote, buybacks are great, but getting people to actually give up their guns is quite difficult. And so and then I moved to ask, would you support banning future sales of assault weapons? I think that uh, I think that using the National Firearms Act is actually a more effective way of addressing that issue. Um, because if you have eight to 15 million assault weapons that are out there, even if you have a buyback program and you pass a ban, then suddenly all those people who have those weapons are criminals. And so how are we going to get it? Right, so but that's, that's, that's sort of the, what my, my question is predicated yeah. on, which is you are not, you're not necessarily criminalizing the people who own the weapons currently, but banning future sales. Is that something that you would support? Um, I don't, I think that whenever you're talking about banning a weapon, it becomes somewhat problematic because uh, let's look back at the previous assault weapons ban. Um, it was written by members of Congress and it was completely ineffective in getting rid of assault weapons. Um, everybody thinks that it was useful, but what happens is gun manufacturers determine that there are different ways that they can manufacture those weapons that get around the, get around the law. So I can't imagine how we can have um, a piece of legislation that could encapsulate those types of, of weapons. I, it, I would have to see how that was, was written in a way that didn't have loopholes, which could be exploited. So my concern is that we haven't been able to effectively do that in the past. I would have to really think hard about how it could be done effectively in the future. And then think hard about whether or not our attention to that type of a ban has us lose sight of all these other measures, which more effectively, I would argue, um, address gun violence in America. 
Yeah. Well, you know, as you said earlier, it does seem to be an issue where change is happening at the state level as opposed to the federal level. I guess we'll have to see if that dynamic shifts uh, in the future. So I want to move well, next and talk should, about just, just to follow up. I yeah, think it should. Ahead. Yeah, I think I think it's something we need to have. a We need to have a really productive conversation about gun violence in America. Um, I would say we start with letting the CDC study this issue because I think a lot of people are unaware of how bad it is in terms of um, uh, the role of, of handguns in the inner cities. Um, if you're African-American, you're 13 times more likely to, to die uh, than somebody who's in a suburban area from a handgun. So I think we need to look at those issues. But of course, Parkland is so, so traumatic. And we've seen this is one of many school shootings that we've seen, often with assault weapons. So I, it's understandable that our attention is drawn to that and the attention of these kids is drawn to that. But I think we have to look more broadly at gun violence in America. And my uh, approach to it is the same as my approach is to legislating, which is that we have to Let's see where we have strong bipartisan support. Let's see what is possible with a Republican in the White House, a likely a Republican in uh, controlled Senate. And let's get those measures passed because those will help us immediately start saving lives. So that's that's why I, I have this approach. Okay. So let's shift over and talk about health care. Uh, you talk on your Web page about wanting to repair the ACA and uh, specifically about stabilizing the marketplace. And as far as that goes, I'm wondering, would you support reinstating the individual mandate that was repealed under the GOP tax law? Absolutely. And then I would say the next thing we have to do is um, get the Murray Alexander bill passed because that will help stabilize the marketplace as well. It's a bipartisan law that is in um, it's sort of hold up right now in Congress, which would uh, deal with the cost share uh, cost share um, uh, for areas. And so I think that that the ACA is an imperfect piece of legislation. Um, it. Uh, helped us uh, fix the bleeding in terms of um, people not having access to health care. Um, and there are millions of people who are on the ACA, and I think that we can't abandon it um, because those people will lose coverage. So I think that that's the first place that we go is we stabilize it. Obviously, if you don't have the individual mandate, people, mostly young, healthy people, will be less inclined to actually um, sign up for it. So I think we start there. You have said that you don't support a Medicare for all healthcare type program. And a number of listeners have asked why. So I'll, I'll just ask you, why not? Sure. Sure. I support having some form of comprehensive health care for all Americans. Um, what people are dissatisfied about is the fact that I don't say right away that we should have Medicare for all, but I have rather a, a, a an incremental approach and people seem dissatisfied with that. But Knowing that it's going to be difficult to have that level of universal care in terms of having it pass, again, with a Republican president, Republican-controlled Senate, my argument is we start with the ACA. There are 18,000 people in the 3rd Congressional District who are on the Affordable Care Act. Let's fix that. Let's bring down those costs in order to get those people coverage. Because if they don't have coverage and they don't have coverage now, people are going to they're going to die and they're going to get sicker and they're actually going to be more expensive to treat. The next thing that I talk about is let's pursue some type of a public option as a way of having people have an avenue through government to buy insurance, um, which would provide additional coverage. And, and, and then I say, let's look at other types of um, avenues per, for getting as many people coverage as possible. Um, so I think the the criticism of, of my approach is that I don't say Medicare for all right now. I say this is what we can do in, in this particular political climate in order to protect as many people as possible. 
And so your approach is practical. And then I, I guess that begs the question, with your incremental approach, do you see yourself ever supporting a Medicare for all type healthcare program? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I, a, a political campaign is really easy if people speak in taglines yeah. and they say, I want X, Y, and Z. For me, I will say I want X, Y, and Z, but let me first find a way to pay for it. Would, would healthcare for all be exactly what we want? Of course, we're the only industrialized country that doesn't have it, but let's make sure that we have a path to doing it um, and finding a way to pay for it. Uh, would it be great for us to have uh, college education, which is free for everybody? Absolutely. But let's find out how we pay for it first. So um, that's where uh, the details uh, trouble me. The details keep me up at night because I want to make sure that there's a way that we can get there. I don't just want to promise somebody that I can do something. What, and, of course, I hear listeners in my head saying, you know, we could pay for that. The, the money does exist. It's just a matter of political priorities. And we saw many billions of dollars given away to our nation's billionaires in tax cuts recently, which could just as easily have gone toward universal health care, say. So what I hear you saying is you're looking at the situation as it is in 2018 and saying this is what is possible now. That's precisely what I'm saying. And I think that that approach to governing may, again, not be as uh, seductive as uh, <laughs> saying that I want all these things and can get it right away. Uh, my approach is what can we do to help the mo- the, you know, the, the, the largest number of people at this particular time in this climate? And that's why my approach to gun safety is uh, practical. That's why my approach to healthcare is practical. Even my approach to tax reform is practical, which is that I'd love to repurpose all of that money. It's going to be very difficult to do with this administration. So I, I again, it's not a, um, it's not what people may want to hear, but that's how I would govern. So let's move on to some specific listener questions. Uh, Georgia Davenport would like to know your stance on House Joint Resolution 48. Now, this would overturn Citizens United and create a constitutional amendment that would declare that money isn't speech and corporations aren't people. Uh, Both your primary opponents, Dorothy Gask and David McDevitt, support it. uh, Do you? Absolutely. Okay. There you go. So that's it. And and actually, uh, Georgia goes on to mention Washington's Initiative 735, which uh, passed last year uh, here in the state and urged but didn't require Washington's congressional delegation to propose an amendment overturning Citizens United. Uh, And she noted that uh, 735 had 64 percent support in this state. What does that say to you? Well, it says that there's there's tremendous uh, grassroots support for overturning Citizens United. I will say um, that is very difficult to pass constitutional amendments to over. You know, it, it's happened four times in our constitutional history. Four times we've been able to pass an amendment which addresses a Supreme Court decision uh, that people are dissatisfied with. So I, I, I hope we can do it. I'd like to see a, a, a grassroots effort to have that amendment passed. But I think in the interim, we need to do more in terms of federal legislation to increase transparency for um, um, the issue of money in politics. And what does that legislation look like to you? If you were in Congress right now, what would you get behind? um, I would get behind anything that that would uh, more clearly link who the donors are to the advertisements that that are happening, um, that would more clearly link um, uh, uh, the the connection between lobbyists um, and campaigns. So I I think transparency is really important on this particular issue because people do not know 
who is funding uh, many of these campaigns, particularly dark money. So I think we could do that, which would address part of the problem um, while pursuing a constitutional amendment or differences, uh, different people on the Supreme Court um, for them to reverse Citizens United. Absolutely. And that obviously is a Senate battle. So Jen Robertson uh, notes your priorities page doesn't mention LGBTQIA people. Where do they fit in your platform? I'm very strongly an advocate um, uh, for them. And our our webpage is indeed incomplete. There's a lot of things that aren't on it. When when I ask this question, I definitely talk about how, um, uh, you know, equality is important for all all groups. So I'm I'm very much a strong supporter. I'm very progressively liberal on those issues, issues of women's reproductive health. um, So absolutely. And then Jennifer Diane or Dean and Jennifer, I apologize if I'm getting your last name wrong, but she asks, how much of a priority is making Southwest Washington safer for families of color? It's very much a priority. You know, I, I don't know if you've looked at the demographics of the district. The district is overwhelmingly white. That doesn't mean that we, we can't do um, a better, a more effective job protecting people of color. Um, I, I am very aware of some of the issues in um, uh you know, in those communities. Um, I was at a recent meeting at the NAACP and people were talking about um, making sure that they were uh, safe in their communities. And so that that's something that I'll be talking more about. So then uh, just uh, one last question. Uh, in order to run here, you relocated from Salem, Oregon to Vancouver in July of 2016. Uh, a lot of candidates relocate for state-level races, but the, this is a question that's going to come up in terms of your roots in the district. Sure. Uh, your uh, potential opponent, Jamie Herrera-Butler, uh, has referred to you as, quote, Oregon-based. Uh, so how do you respond to that? Sure. So the first response is that I've worked in the community for 22 years. I know more about Southwest Washington uh, than I do about my former home in Salem. Um, Every place I go in every remote part of my district, I see a former student of mine or somebody where I've done some work with um, with some of my organizational work. So I uh, have been immersed in Southwest Washington for a very long time. And uh, the hundreds of students, the generations of students would attest to that. Um, I think that even though I've only been in the district for the last eight months. Um, The fact that I've been awarded for my community work um, is a testament for uh, how I am part of the community. I know that my opponent, uh, Jamie Herrera-Butler, has been talking about how um, I am doing this out of political opportunity, but the reality is my family and I have been trying to relocate to Southwest Washington for the last several years. Um, It's hard when you have two uh, uh, people working, um, two jobs, uh, which is necessary in this economy. Sometimes it's hard for you to be both in the same place, and that's what we've been working on. I was finally able to move myself eight months ago. My family will will be joining me once my husband gets the job transfer, so I think it's being used as an attempt to um, uh, take the take somebody's eyes off of the fact that our representative has not been effective and that I'm a viable candidate who's able to unseat her. Well, you certainly seem to be uh, the first candidate running to make it onto her radar. So she's talking about you. <laughs> That's um, true. What do you need in terms of support for your campaign? Certainly every campaign needs money, but uh, also volunteers, et cetera. How can people help? I think volunteering is absolutely integral for us winning this race um, because I believe it's going to be won by a ground game. We have 600 volunteers already in the four months we've been in this race. We need to quadruple that. We need those volunteers in every part of the district because it is rather large district. In order to get the message out, we do need people on team long. So that's the best thing that can happen in terms of uh, buttressing up this, this, um, uh, this campaign. 
Okay. And so where can people go to learn more? So my website is electlong.com. Uh, and that is the best place. Uh, and you can reach out to us. We have a volunteer coordinator who will um, uh, get your contact information and we'll get you to working as soon as possible. Well, Carolyn Long, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck. Thanks, Stefan. Have a great day. You too. And so that'll do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to indivisiblepodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for our show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at indivisiblepod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thanks again to my guest, Rebecca Traster, with special thanks to Sarah Reedy. As always, thanks to you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. <laughs>